We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pitfalls of projections. That's what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretchen from my newsletter at bengretchen.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. Find off his work at Rotoviz. Been cranking out articles while I've been vacationing. And Sean, I've been working through my projections. We've been talking a little bit, you know, before shows, and you've been asking me for, you know, if there's anything that's been popping in, in my projections or, you know, what might be interesting, fun things to talk about. We talked about Trey Lance recently, but we got to a fun t- discussion sort of as we were thinking about what we talk about tonight. It kind of centered on this idea that as I go through these projections, it's not easy to do, and you've done them before. This is a tough year with a lot of movement around the NFL. And there's a lot of pitfalls you can run into with projections. There's a couple of players that we had talked about specifically where I sort of said this is the type of player that I'm not even going to pay attention to my projection for when it comes to sort of how I evaluate them. But we thought it might be fun as we got on to, to talk about sort of the whole process. Exactly. And it's just so fun to listen to you talk about some of the things that you're running up against. And projections are just kind of crazy, right? It's There are so many people in the industry now who are very, very good at them. And it is helping ADP to be a little bit tighter than it was a few years ago. And yet at the same time, there all there are a lot of pitfalls. And as you mentioned, I have done some in the past. We've got some great tools at Rotoviz. If you want to go through and do your own, the projection machine will not only let you project all the teams, but it's got all kinds of research in there that you can use to get a sense of what these teams have done in the past, which as you know, obviously, is, is very, very useful. One of the things we're running into this year, obviously, we have a bunch of QBs change. We have a bunch of coaches change. Those things are going to change a lot of the trends. And yet, even when you know what a team has done in the past, there are still a lot of things you can fall into. And with these tools that we have at Rotoviz, I did do projections for a while, and I felt like the projections ended up actually with excellent accuracy. And yet, to an extent... I felt like it actually made my game worse. Now, that's not to say don't look at projections. You do a great job with yours. You're going to do a show with Michael Leone. He is obviously just absolutely fantastic with them. I look at projections also from Dave Cabin, who does the projections for Rotoviz. There are other people out there doing a great job. 
And yet, we also want to look beyond projections. And we've got some evergreen shows that people have been uh, joined us recently and have go been going back through the archives. They'll see some of the shows that we've done on talent and how that's going to drive opportunity. It's going to drive workload. And maybe don't be as focused on week one. But I also like to put these tools together with a variety of other ways of looking at how players would score. And so we have the range of outcomes tool up on the site, which is sort of situation agnostic. And you're thinking, well, if it's situation agnostic, then how does that really help you? Because the situation is so important. And yet it can just be so valuable to go in there and calibrate your expectations for what some of these players will do to give a little bit of a feel for regression and how that actually matches up with actual outcomes for players one of the things that's hard to do when you're projecting people is not to have everybody sort of over projected just because of the way a season works and then how that translates into other seasons so you can go in and look and this has 25 percentile 50 percentile 75 percentile outcomes based on historical matches and i like that it's not that every historical match for a player is actually perfect for them or you know gives you insight into what they're going to do but it does give you some context we also have the win the flex tool, which gives you implied 80 implied points based on ADP. That for me is just wildly helpful when I'm trying to think through what I want to do in drafts. You can also use the Rotoviz screener to create, again, projections that are going to be sort of situation agnostic, but look at the player's statistical profile and give you a sense of what that actually means for how players tend to score the next year. You put all that together, and I think you're looking at it from different angles and that gives you a sense of the range but even with that and what we always come back to is it's the scenarios and it's the contingencies that actually matter when we condense those down to one number we lose a lot of the information that we actually need but when you go through and do the project yourself like you're doing then there is this element where you've condensed it down on the end, but you have so much information. And one of the things you were telling me about this that I thought was really cool is you've gotten through 10 teams. So you're about through a third of the league and you've been labeling sort of the final projection for those teams, either in green, yellow, or red based on how confident you are. And the split was a little bit in the direction of red. I don't think that that's necessarily bad. It's very fun. It creates some potential exploitable opportunities. And another thing you and I talk about a lot is this idea that you actually want to target teams and target players where there is a very wide range in part because those are the easiest players for the community to get wrong. And that opens up an area where you could perhaps be right. But then part of that, and you know, in some ways synonymous with that is the idea that those players are also the ones where you could actually beat ADP. Whereas if you draft these guys in tighter ranges, yeah, I mean, they could get hurt or a teammate could get hurt and maybe that bumps them. But basically, you're just hoping they score what ADP suggests. That's not how you create a super team. And so just so many fun things to unpack here. Yeah, and that's our show. You've unpacked them all. That was, that was incredible. There was so much that, that you just said that I felt like we could have branched off a lot of different ways and done an hour on each. I, I guess I'll start with the red, yellow, green thing. Yeah, so I... The, one of the big things that I've learned over the last couple of years doing this, well, number one, I've become more and more disillusioned with projections over the years. Anyone who reads Stealing Signals or follows my work knows that I'm pretty outspoken about it. 
but I still do them. And the biggest reason that I still do them is I, I use that as a huge research process, as, as you were just talking about. And I think that's very valuable. One of the biggest issues for me is when I get to the end or that I've really come to, to realize when I get to the end and I, I look at my final projection rankings, basically my quarterbacks and their projected points and my running backs, and my receivers, and my tight ends is just recognizing the one that, that when you get to that point and you look at it from a league perspective, there are some that are coming from teams where I've made, you know, a lot of assumptions that I don't necessarily believe in. And there are others that come from situations that I feel pretty confident in. And so I think they have like a narrower band, but it's, it's, it's really comparing sort of apples to oranges with some of these projections where it's like, you know, I could definitely see being really wrong on this. And you were just talking about that. And maybe that's, those are the spots to target in some cases. Right. So this year, as you mentioned, I decided to color code my teams to kind of, to fall back on it in part, because there's been a lot of movement this year. And I kind of want to just keep in mind, like, look, I don't even know what I'm doing with this team. You know, I just did Miami recently and we're going to Baltimore right now. Baltimore is a team that um, from a called pass perspective, they called passes on about 63% of plays last year. Their two prior seasons, they were sub 50%. Of all the teams I've done so far, none of them have had a sub 50% called pass rate. The actual you know, pass rate can be below 50%. The runs can, can be higher than the passes uh, in part because of QB scrambles and things like that. But the cold pass rate has been higher than 50% for, and I've already done both Seattle and new England who have been a couple of the more willing to call run plays, run heavy type teams over the last few years at times, but no one else has had a single season sub 50% in terms of called pass rate. Baltimore has twice in the last three years and both of the years leading into 2021. And then they're up at 63%, which is like a little bit on the high end in terms of a called pass rate. And just like sort of looking through that and being like, hey, I haven't even finished my Baltimore projection, but I already turned them to a red team because I know whatever pass rate I set them at, I'm not confident in. Like I can regress that 63% a little bit and have it like around 61% or 60% and pretty close to last year. That doesn't feel like I'm regressing enough. But if I get it down even to like 58%, which is still a lot higher than 2019 and 2020, like a lot higher. And I don't think they're going to be a sub 50% team again, right? But even if I have it in the high 50s in the 57% range, like I said, when you add in Lamar Jackson scramble, right, you come up with a projection where they're like pretty close to 50-50 in terms of runs and passes. You're talking about cutting 100 pass attempts off of their total from last year. They also ran the most plays in the NFL last year. And so we've talked a lot about how they, they might throw fewer times this year. If you regress their total play volume at all, if you regress their pass rate at all, you're going to find yourself looking at them throwing a hundred fewer passes pretty quick. And so it is a team like that where I'm like, I don't want to be completely out on every Raven because there's a possibility they maintain that and they've had an organizational shift towards the pass. Right. But I, I, I just don't feel comfortable. So the green teams are, look, I feel this is the most likely scenario. And I feel like it's actually a pretty likely one. Maybe it's 30% likely or 40%. No one scenario Obviously, it's going to be, you know, 70% likely. But this scenario or something very re closely resembling it or somewhat closely resembling it, you know, barring injury and those types of things, I feel like it's like maybe even like a 30% or a 40% likely scenario. I'm going to call that green. I just did that for the Bills. The Bills feel pretty comfortable with what they are. Yellow, I'm thinking I feel comfortable about the, this being the most likely scenario. 
but I think there's a lot of other ones that you could, you know, you can make good cases for. Maybe it's a 15% most likely or 20% most likely, but there's a lot of other ones, other scenarios or, or key differences that could happen with their team volume, with their opportunity splits in terms of target share and rush attempts and things that could, that I would think of as, you know, 10% likely scenarios, what have you, right? I'm, I'm just sort of, this is how I'm thinking through it. The reds are the ones where I'm like, I don't even, I don't even know if this is the most likely scenario. You could convince me multiple assumptions that I made here are wrong. And that's, or, or very important, at least one very important assumption. That's again, going to the Ravens. I think their pass rate could be anywhere from 10 different percentage points. Basically it could be down low, close to 50% again, because they did go out and draft two tight ends. They did trade away their wide receiver one. They haven't really added anyone else besides Rashad Bateman. We've all been kind of saying maybe Julio Jones winds up there or somebody does, but this looks like a team that's going back to, Hey, we want to play two, three tight end football. And maybe we want to be run heavy again. Maybe we think last year was a problem. At the same time, there was a lot of positive that came from their passing. And I think that they are a smart organization and, and recognize some things. And so, I mean, I could see them being up over 60% pass rate again. I could see them being in the low 50s or, or approaching those 2019 and 2020 seasons where they were sub 50%. That's a huge range that would massively impact the projections for all of the receivers in terms of their target rates and all of the rush numbers for the running backs. And so I'm, I'm immediately making the Ravens, you know, a red team where I'm like, I'm going to wind up with an assumption that I'm not confident in. I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to pick a number, probably try to split the difference, but I'm not going to be confident in it. How much do you feel like the talent on the teams, maybe especially in these situations where we're not confident because there are dynamics that could push them to a pretty wide range. How do you feel like that will play out? One of the things that's kind of interesting with the Ravens is that they have this very wide range in terms of what the pass rate could be. And yet at the same time, it feels like one of the offenses that maybe is the most set in place in terms of who the stars are and who's going to be touching the ball within the context of whether or not it's run or pass and that they should be explosive either way, and that you have Lamar Jackson, who is this elite rushing quarterback, but also a good vertical passer. And you have someone, Rashad Bateman, who played poorly last season. You know, Rookies can go either direction. Blair's about to release some more. Uh, another fantastic entry in his wrong read series, again, kind of talking about how the efficiency for rookie receivers is actually a pretty strong signal, and Bateman wasn't in that group. That's I think a little bit concerning, but someone who was a first round pick had great numbers at Minnesota is actually much more athletic, I think, than people realize. And so you have that vertical element. He had a season in college where he was over 20 yards per reception. If you look at some of the regression trees for prospect evaluation in the past, you'll see that, you know, someone up over 17%, that tends to put you in an area where minimal other positive signs, you actually have a, a pretty good chance of developing into an above average NFL player. So you have this vertical threat, a receiver with a vertical passing QB. You have JK Dobbins coming back who put up extraordinarily good peripherals. You can check those out in the advanced stat explorer as a rookie. He gets hurt. He's coming back. We know that his injury too is something that kind of throws this projection into the red, but when he's there and when he's ready, he's going to be one of the three or four most dynamic backs in the NFL. Now, because he's probably not going to catch very many passes, that's still tricky for fantasy, which is one of the reasons, in addition to the injury, that he's not particularly expensive. But the talent obviously is there. And you have Mark Andrews, who probably now is the best tight end in the NFL. And so 
we can kind of make some assumptions within the context of a team that could pass at very different rates. But it seems like those are going to be the guys and the scoring is going to flow through them. When you looked at some of these scenarios, how does that kind of manifest itself for the Ravens, but then also maybe contrast for us the Ravens and another red team that maybe has some different issues? That's one of the other things you said said earlier that I, I think we could have talked about for a super long time, but it, 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 I mean, you said that so well. Um, the, so the Ravens, I would say after I, if you could tell me what their pass rate is going to be, I'd probably make them a green team because of all the things you just said. And I feel pretty confident projecting Mark Andrews for his share, right. And projecting Rashad Bateman, just because I think that he's pretty clearly going to be ahead of the other receivers that are there, even though there are some concerns with what the year one for Bateman's targets per out run more, weren't fantastic either, but you have to like where he's at Dobbins, you know, assuming health for, for being a, you know, a huge part of that and sort of the hierarchy at each position, right. Who's coming next, you know, wide receivers are a little trickier. Who's the second best receiver, but you know, Gus Edwards is going to factor in behind Dobbins if healthy. Right. And they brought in Mike Davis. They have Tyler Beatty. It's going to be some type of a shift. I can project that pretty easily. All of that to me feels very, you know, green. And so for some teams, it's it's the team level stuff that is red, and and then the player level stuff feels a lot more green. You know, I, I feel comfortable projecting Lamar Jackson's rush rate at this point. It's actually been pretty darn consistent. It's come down a little bit as he's gotten a little older, but you know the range he's going to be in. You know the type of rush volume he's going to have in terms of both you know design runs, scrambles, all of those things. And so the whole rest of it, allocating all of the rushes and the passes and everything, is relatively easy for them. If you get the team volume right, there's other teams where you feel pretty confident co- confident about maybe their team volume. I use Arizona as, as a yellow team. Feel pretty comfortable they're going to be pretty up tempo. They've played a similar way the last couple of years. Kyler scrambles are going to keep their pass you know pass volume down a little bit, but like allocating the work there was tough. It was tough because James Conner looks like he's going to be getting tons of work at running back. That's a little bit easier in a projection sense. But there is some concern about how healthy he's. He's not always been fully healthy. I'm a little concerned to his age that he can stay. You know, he's probably how you address that in a projection. A, an older running back is is up for debate. I, I tend to just project the guy for full health, basically, and then keep it in mind the health stuff after the fact. But then at receiver, you have Hopkins on suspension, and so what does that mean for the opportunity it creates for Rondell Moore and Trey McBride early in the year and those types of guys? Do they earn? roles that then sustain throughout the season you know there's a lot of ways you can see the receiver and and pass catcher group shift and so for them team level volume feels pretty comfortable how do i project the target shares that's actually a little tougher i can see scenarios where a few of these guys step up early and become key pieces for them and really push like an aj green completely out when when deandre hopkins comes back because it's just so clear that you know rondell moore has to be on the field or trey mcbride has to be on the field but the, the, the other red team that fits this is Miami, which is one of these teams where, okay, we added Tyreek Hill. What do we do now, right? And so you talked about the talent, and then there's this push and pull with what do we expect from the coaches and things. We have Mike McDaniel coming over, a lot of assumption that he's going to bring over sort of a San Francisco-type offense. Well, San Francisco tends to be pretty run-heavy in the ways that they call plays. Miami, the last few years themselves, have had a positive pass rate over expected is McDaniel going to be more pass heavy in this offense? Cause the, the note that I wrote for the team stuff was real tough team overall, not confident in their touchdown total, their usage rates, their efficiency, obviously wide uncertainty bars. 
And then I wrote pass rate is tough. San Francisco historically run heavy. This roster is aligned to pass. That's the key, right? Like Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle are your best players. And that's what I always try and keep in mind. Like a good coach is going to make sure to get those guys the ball. And I have them, you know, running a decent amount as well, combining for 25 carries, which is kind of a lot for a team's top two receivers. It's not, you know, what Debo Samuel did last year or anything, but it's a good chunk of rush attempts. I have them, you know, seeing pretty hefty target percentages because I'm expecting designed passes to them. I don't have their ADOTs super high because I think they're going to get the ball in Tyreek's hands closer to the line of scrimmage. Um, Waddles wasn't very high last year anyway. You know, I have Gesicki there, and then you look at the running backs, and you're also going, I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know, Chase Edmonds is going to have his role, but what, what does it mean? What what, were the, what do they get out of Raheem Mostert? What does Sony Michelle do? Is Miles Gaskin completely dead as sort of the fourth running back in your projection? And so this was a team where I did, and I, I do think a lot about what you said, that, and that's something we've talked about a lot over the years, that the talent is going to shift the trend somewhat. And so part of me, when I start these, I, I can look at the past trends, but a lot of times with a team like Miami, I'm going, I don't, I, I don't look at their past trends. I'm, I'm going to start this from scratch. And I'm going to say, we have a whole new offensive system coming. We also have a whole new shift in terms of what their talent looks like, right? All new running backs. Tyree Kill is now your wide receiver one. I'm kind of throwing up air quotes because Waddle might be as well. Waddle was there, but Tyreek Hill and Waddle together is different than Waddle and Devontae Parker or whoever. Cedric Wilson is there as well. You still have Gesicki, you still have Waddle. That's about it, really, in terms of you know how this offense looked last year. At times, it was only Waddle and Gesicki getting the targets. We loved that on, on one of our uh, our main event teams that we talked a lot about last year that was fantastic with Pat and Pete. But this year, you know, they have Tyreek Hill there now. They have some other things, and so... I'm not really looking at Waddle's target share last year as much. I mean, I'm looking at it from the perspective that I know that he's good or I have a strong indication that he's good. But like when I build out this projection for this team, I'm, I'm going, okay, where does, where's the talent and, and how do I think that this offense should run basically? <laughs> because I, you know, I, it's almost assuming coaching competence, which can get you in trouble as well. So it's a tricky team when you look at, you know, a team like Miami. And as you were kind of going through that, it reminded me of a team that Kyle Shanahan was an offensive coordinator for in Houston, where Matt Schaub, Andre Johnson, I believe Schaub was up there, not the NFL leader, but toward the very top in terms of passing yards. And so again, a situation where if the talent really dictates that you attack in a certain way, that offense can be deployed in a way that unlocks that as opposed to tries and force it through those running backs who, I mean, those are solid running backs. And I've been drafting a lot of Sony Michelle late for the very reason that, I mean, he seems set up nicely to do, you know, in weeks 14 through 17, more or less what he did last year in the fantasy playoffs. And so I think that you want to create exposure to that. And at the same time, it's not really, the way we would expect Miami to go when you're thinking of some of these teams too. And new England was another team that you put in this difficult to project range. They have a QB taking that second year step. We talk a lot about wide receivers and the second year leap, but it's also something that is the case for quarterbacks. It's interesting right now. Cause I'm in a couple of dynasty startups where 
the fact that, and, and you can pull up the Rotovis Triflex Dynasty ADP in our tools and, and kind of look at where these guys are. And we talked about how it can give you some critical information for redraft. The fact that Zach Wilson is so expensive now that Garrett Wilson is also there along with Elijah Moore and drafters think, okay, well, he's got these key weapons. Mac Jones also going relatively early, but not as early, which in some ways is startling because he's in this very strong organization, even though they've got some squirrely stuff going on in terms of how they may run their, their offense from a coaching perspective this year. Very strong organization, probably the best of the rookie quarterbacks last year. Someone who looks like he could be a long-term, say, Matt Ryan or Kirk Cousins. I mean, if you're drafting in a startup right now, and you could get Kirk Cousins or Matt Ryan in their early 20s, you'd have this asset that would allow you to dominate the Superflex spot. Maybe not your QB1, but the Superflex spot for a decade. And they've added Devontae Parker. They've added Tyquan Thornton. So how do you feel like that type of thing will manifest where you have some young players and you have this very now crowded wide receiver room where it's almost the opposite from Miami where they have some true stars it feels like almost the Patriots problem is just that they have a bunch of guys and it would have just at some point along the way it would have made sense for them to actually add above average players as opposed to continually stockpiling below average players and I mean I think Thornton adds this interesting piece now because you have a 4-2 guy I mean, it can require some quarterback play. And that'll be one of the interesting things in Miami is to see just how good Tyreek Hill is. I mean, he's strongly suggested on his podcast, which he should. I mean, you should, on your own podcast, you should be saying, <laughs> I'm a great wide receiver. But he suggested he's going to be good with Tua, right? Some of these guys who run in the fortunes, that's one of the reasons why, then I have to admit that I got caught up watching some Rondell Moore highlights the other day and he's going to be good you're right? back in you're back in <laughs> how can you not be he's going to be good Tyquan thornton can get by the defenders he gives mac jones that deep element but we have thornton we have parker we have jacoby myers those probably kind of the frontline guys but then we also have nelson aguilar and kendrick Bourne behind them we have multiple tight ends we have multiple running backs in many cases one of the things that we're looking for when we actually draft is not so much how the players are projected to play, but situations in which you're actually getting a little bit of a discount on the player where they're going. So you have them a little bit above ADP, but there's also a potential injury situation. And again, when we mention this, we're rooting for everyone to stay healthy. But the fact of the matter is that, I mean, the NFL is a brutal game and a ton of injuries are going to happen, not just one or two and not just like one, you know, league altering fantasy altering injury, but a ton are going to happen. If you're getting a guy a little bit of a discount and then one of his teammates get injured and the offense is still strong enough, then he's actually going to destroy ADP. A team like the New England Patriots probably not built that way because an injury there and you're you're still just in the same boat. They've got a lot of guys. Yeah, that, that sounded like Miami, right? If Tyreek goes down, Waddle can crush. Uh, and, and you're not getting a huge discount necessarily on Tyreek or Waddle, but and vice versa, it's true. And, and those guys just are the guy as opposed to, to trying to coexist a little. You definitely feel very good taking them where they're going right now. 
And, and we talk about that. We talk about looking for those crowded receiving rooms and those situations where there's content, you know, contingency upside as well. The Miami might not be the best example, like I said, because they are both pretty expensive. And so, you know, it's best when the player might be able to hit their, you know, their their value at the, where they're being drafted or even exceed it without an injury. And then there's this sort of baked in upside, which sort of is the the Tyler Boyd point always <laughs> or has been since, you know, at least since last year. But it feels like always it was the Jarvis Landry point, I guess, for a lot of years where, you know, Boyd seemed, is just that guy for me right now in, in my head. Where if something were to happen to Chaser Higgins, I think Boyd is still very good and still in his prime and, and could be a lot better. But he can also still be good enough if they stay healthy. Well, and you hate to even like say this out loud, but Brandon Ayuk, I mean, think about what he could do if one of those other two guys goes down. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. But yeah, the reason I put New England, I, I made them a yellow team, but it was, part of it was, look, Josh McDaniels is gone now. And we don't really know what that's going to mean. We don't really know what's going to mean for who, who's going to call their plays. I think the latest we heard was, was going to be Matt Patricia, a defensive coordinator and you know former defensive coach. But I said that I had them running a few more plays. I have them throwing a bit more in the last couple of years because I just think that's probably the natural progression with Mac Jones taking over. Certainly, you know, throwing more than 2020 when they had Cam Newton for most of the year and their pass rate was very, very low. But so I'm projecting them to throw a little more and run a few more plays. That's That seems fairly minor. But I do feel like that could be – I mean, that, that that seems like an easy enough projection, but I do feel like that could be pretty far off. They could be even run heavier. We don't know. We don't know how the, the new coach tree under Belichick is going to you know operate. Obviously, Belichick's still going to ha- have his hands in everything, but their offense has shifted a lot over the years. We can say that. And then you talked about how different each position – you know, could go right. You have Harris and Stevenson and, and Pierre strong at running back and whether James white's healthy. I mean, that's kind of just throwing up my hands and, and just sort of doing it like by ADP, giving Harris the lead, you know, the lead share Stevenson, the next share and drawing the next share and giving white some receiving and receiving. I mean, you, 
obviously you you expect that I projected Jacoby Myers for 150 targets because that's an easy answer when you were forgetting about him as you talked about all the guys. I mentioned just three guys. players there. Three three good wide receivers. Thornton and Parker and Myers. You were talking about all of the guys that aren't very good on this team. Just forgot about Jacoby Myers, obviously. I'll I'll let you, you know, have that. <laughs> but when Thornton has three touchdowns in his first game and Myers is is like running into the end zone to congratulate <laughs> him, it's gonna be such a nice moment. I I get points for that. Point point I'm in a point per high five league. Yes, you're right about the receivers and then even the tight ends. Like there's been like little whispers here and there. Or I, I don't know, at least suggestions, maybe just more in the fantasy industry that, you know, the Patriots GM Bill Belichick signed John New Smith to a huge deal and maybe wasn't thrilled that offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels, from a head coaching perspective, that his offensive coordinator last year wasn't utilizing this player as well as he maybe could have and that John New Smith could be a bigger piece of the offense. I kind of buy into that. I think he's an interesting player. We've talked about him. I say it from time to time and I have no sources. So, okay, maybe I got anybody it. who's getting it from me. It's probably from you. Just conjecture. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just squash that rumor right now. But I I kind of like the idea of projecting Jonas Smith to do a little more. He wasn't exactly bad last year, and it was a little bizarre. And that would probably be bad for Hunter Henry, you know, if John is actually involved. So it's a team where from a you know positional allocation perspective, it's really tough. And from the, the team level stuff, it's tough. But I... You know, I like the way you're kind of putting it in terms of there might not be a lot of upside here anyway. <laughs> you know, so there, the, we talk about player talent and I, we, we named the show the pitfalls of projections and sort of the point that we're trying to get to that you and I agree on and agreed on before the show and felt like it would be smart to talk through on a show and try to convey is there are going to be players in situations where sort of, I mean, for you, you might just not even be looking at projections at all, but I'm going to just throw out projections entirely, even though I've done the whole projection. Part of that is just for me to think through the different ways it could play out the relative skill level. I think of the different players, what might happen in different, you know, what guys could break into what types of roles within the offense or how I think the offense might structure. I think that's a really useful exercise every year. It's a, it's a huge part of my research process in the off season but, I mean, we were talking about the Jets a little bit. Brees Hall, he was a guy we didn't get to on the last show when we did Risers and Fallers, and he's been rising a little bit. And I, I said to you, he's a guy who basically immediately I know I'm going to just throw out my projection because in some respect I'm kind of doing a, that that week one snapshot thing where, yeah, Michael Carter's still on this roster. I got to project him for a decent number of carries. I'm actually projecting him for more targets. We kind of think, you know, he has this pass-catching background. We kind of think of him as – potentially playing a little bit more of a pass catching role alongside Hall, at least as Hall is early in his rookie year, whether or not that plays out, you know, might not be true. We thought the same thing of Naheem Hines alongside Jonathan Taylor in his rookie year. And Hines probably did catch more passes that year. I think almost certainly did, but Jonathan Taylor was fantastic. And so there's, there's, there are paths for great players to be great. Right. But with Hall in a projection, I, I, it's tough. And especially on a team where I'm projecting them to, their offense doesn't look great. So I'm looking at things like Vegas win totals and projected points, and I can't really project them for a ton of, uh, a ton of touchdowns. Worst teams run fewer plays. I'm not projecting them for league average plays per game. I'm projecting them below that. I'm not projecting this team to be particularly good. And so the way the Hall fits in, or even the way that Garrett Wilson fits in, I'm just saying, look, I could be completely missing the, the point. And if they're good, they're going to elevate the whole team. And this team is probably going to go over their win rate. 
right? Like they're, it's going to be, a, or their expected win total. It's going to be like a Bengals thing last year where Jamar Chase has such a profound impact on the entire offense. They wind up going all the way to the Super Bowl. That's not probably going to happen for the Jets, but you have to understand that those are the types of things that can happen and they're not going to show up in a projection. There's no way that I can get to a Jets projection that accounts for Brees Hall coming in and being a superstar or Garrett Wilson coming in and being a superstar. So for me with a guy like Hall, like I said to you before the show, I'm, I will not look at his projection. I'm, I'm already, you know, wherever he comes out of my running back list is not going to affect my rankings because it's basically like a floor outcome. You know what I mean? It's, it's, okay, they've spent a lot of draft capital on him. Here's how he fits in with the other guys they already have on the roster, some of whom are good. Ty Johnson I have for a little bit of work. Tevin Coleman I have for a little bit of work. They have other names there. But there are paths that we know with rookies and young players to just being so good that they tilt the skills in their favor, as you were just kind of talking about with the talent sort of dictating the way the offense runs. And that would probably change the whole projection for the team. It might change how many touchdowns this whole offense is capable of scoring. If Brees Hall can, you know, I, I keep bringing up Jonathan Taylor. I don't know that he's going to be Jonathan Taylor. I don't think he's going to be Jonathan Taylor. But if he can rip off some Jonathan Taylor long touchdown runs, that improves the team's season, right? And so it's uh, that's a guy that I, you know, I'm kind of throwing it out for. And then you look at a guy, I, I compared him to you, to David Montgomery before the show. David Montgomery is a guy who you feel pretty comfortable projecting for a lot of work. Like I wanted to project Khalil Herbert for more work, projected Tristan Ebner for a little bit of work. But like for the most part, most scenarios, you're looking at the Bears, like David Montgomery is going to get plenty of carries. And yet I'm going to take Brees Hall over David Montgomery every day of the week, but David Montgomery's projection comes out much more, much stronger for me. His targets are higher. You know, I, I feel more confident that he's going to lead his backfield and targets. And so that's, yeah, I don't know, the, like those two types of players, one where you've seen it and one where you haven't, even for me, a guy who's always talking about like, don't trust guaranteed touches, you know, this idea of guaranteed touches, don't pay for past running back production. For a guy like David Montgomery, I don't know that the ceiling is there. We don't know what the ceiling is for Brees Hall. But even for a guy like me, as I do this projection, I have a really hard time not having Montgomery projected for a lot more points. So you understand why drafters then have a hard time when they look at these projections and they start to look at ADP and things, making the types of decisions that we're always kind of sort of advocating for. It's a, it's a really interesting process. I think the way that projections impact ADP and all of that. What do you think? Well, I had a lot of ideas there as you were talking. And the first one that I want to kind of look at is this idea of, Floor and ceiling, properly calibrated expectations, how that affects ADP and how it affects the way people draft. And one of the things that you're famous for and that we obviously make a focal point of our personal drafts when you and I draft together and obviously we draft other people as well, but this idea of the running back dead zone. And it's not necessarily just at the running back position either. I mean, there are going to be areas of the draft that we actually do know are going to be stronger for certain positions than others based on how historically they allow you to win. And so when people are talking about structural drafting, that's one of the things that they're talking about. But I had the range of outcomes tool open here, which you and I had mentioned and looking at some of these players. One of the things when we're looking at the running backs is that we see some interesting names fairly high. We have Nick Chubb as the running back eight David Montgomery, whom you just mentioned at running back 11, and Elijah Mitchell at running back 13. The other thing that we see when we're looking at this is that some of these bigger backs, you think of uh, Chubb 
and Montgomery there, their floors actually tend to be very solid as well. It's actually some of these smaller guys that I really like and have had a ton of success with where you actually have sort of the low 25th percentile outcome, which is interesting. But even within that, and I think it's, Chubb is somebody who's just, I think fascinating this year in terms of, again, kind of this red projection where a lot of things could happen. Depends on who the quarterback is. We know at one point that there was a lot of thought that Cleveland would actually go quite a bit more pass heavy if they got great quarterback play. Now we may be at the very opposite end of the spectrum where they're extremely run heavy if they have Jacoby Brissett. But Chubb, the superstar who doesn't, is not as involved in the pass game as we would like. Not surprisingly, someone like Derrick Henry, with how many points he's scored in the last couple of years, finishes up there as, as number two behind Jonathan Taylor. So we have some run-oriented backs who score fairly well. And we have some good but not great talents in Montgomery and Mitchell who come in kind of in this range. So we know based on projections and based on a tool like this that's using historical matches that it's not a problem of people having poorly calibrated the probable outcomes for these players. The problem comes in in terms of how they actually contribute to winning teams. As you're kind of going through the projections, how does that kind of thing pop out to you? And do you are, are you thinking through things like the running back dead zone and how these projections are going to fit with what you know about the structural drafting and kind of thinking through that element of it, is there any time where you're kind of forcing a guy that you actually know has the profile that could be a league winner up, forcing somebody you know, uh, like you mentioned with Montgomery, I mean, the, the touches are going to be there, but it, it's not going to be a league winning situation in the best case. And then there are a lot of situations in which those end up being just very, very low value touches even situations where he's actually not separating himself from Herbert that much as a talent, as a player, and they work him in. Does that come into play for you where you're kind of trying to push these guys into a projection that will actually fit what you know you want to do as a drafter? That's, I mean, this is such a good question because I I think the the short answer is you kind of can't. I kind of want to know if you have any good ideas for that because you know, when we were talking about Brees Hall a little bit before the show, the, the really sharp thing that you pointed out back to me was then you're under projecting the guy behind him and his potential contingent value. Like then I'm projecting Michael Carter for nothing because you need everything to add up on a team level. So either you're projecting the Jets to be a really good offense, run a ton of plays, score a bunch of touchdowns, have a ton of run plays, be very run heavy, meaning they're probably playing in plus scripts, which none of that jives with their Vegas win total of five and a half games. Or you're projecting Michael Carter to completely take a back seat. Uh, you know, this doesn't relate necessarily to what you're saying about the dead zone, but Hall's a guy who I would have liked to artificially project higher because I think that would have reflected a better uh, average of all of his potential outcomes. Because I think there are these outcomes where he is very, very good because we think he is from a prospect perspective. These are the other things that I am going to add to my head when I make up my decision on Hall and why I'm going to kind of just throw out his projection, but to get that into a projection is incredibly hard because it kind of throws a lot of other stuff off, right? Like, you know, we talked about Arizona with Marquise Brown. I do think there are these scenarios where Rondell Moore is really good in the first six weeks and then is a starter the rest of the year. But to project that outright means you're basically projecting, you know, absolutely nothing from Antoine Wesley, which I'm pretty much projecting anyway but very, very little from A.J. Green. You're projecting DeAndre Hopkins to 
you know, in the games that he's playing, maybe not be quite as dominant and kind of have fallen off, which he you know, was playing through injury last year, but his numbers slipped a little. So we're not real sure. He's still reasonably young, but we're not real sure where he's at necessarily. Maybe you're, you're, you're not projecting Marquise Brown to come and make an immediate splash. And Ronald Moore comes out and ends up being one of the big performers in this offense. To project that impacts everyone else, right? And so it's – but then you go to a team like the Bears again, and you say, David Montgomery, this is a team when you talk about, oh, where's the talent on the offense? There is no talent on this offense, right? So I'm projecting Darnell Mooney for a really strong – season that doesn't mean that Darnell Mooney doesn't have downside scenarios right there can be poor play hesitate to make this comp but it's the best one that popped into my head uh Calvin Ridley even before he stepped away last year wasn't performing particularly well and maybe that had something to do with the off-field stuff but Ridley's a guy who was on an offense last year where it looked like there was nothing and so you you felt really confident about his projection no one's going to take target share from him but while he was playing, like, let's just focus on those first games. He wasn't really performing as great because he's still, you know, a player in his own right where, you know, he could, you could have other things going on. I mean, like I said, I hesitate to make that comp because we don't necessarily know if his performance in those first few weeks was rel- related to sort of some of the off-field stuff. But trying to pull that back into the Mooney point, what if Mooney had a bad offseason? comes in out of shape or something. You know what I mean? Like he's just not there. Him and Fields didn't work out enough together in the offseason. Whatever the reasons are that guys you know, ultimately have down seasons, what if Mooney has a down season in terms of just Darnell Mooney? That's possible. What that would just mean is the Bears offense would probably stink because there's not a lot of other options there. But when I do their projection, there's no way for me to bake in any of that either. So he's a guy that just based on basically not having anyone else on his team, that's that's worth projecting for a lot of targets. I'm projecting a really high target rate. He's going to look really good in my projections. I do think that's very possible, but I think that's closer to a ceiling. Like I don't think because he had a pretty weak supporting cast last year. Um, last year's version of Allen Robinson didn't do much. He wasn't basically just going through the motions. His targets per hour, and we've talked about this on the show, were well lower than his career low, even his rookie season. It was like a bad player basically when he was out there. I mean, that's a fair thing to say, I think relative to his own production and besides Robinson, who else was on that offense, there was not much there and Mooney was good, but not great. So he had that opportunity in this type of offense to be great. I'm projecting him to again, be good, but not great basically. But I think there's a real question of whether he has any additional upside above that. So for a guy like that, I almost want to be baking things down You were asking more about the structural drafting stuff. I mean, that's even a step further than just the individual players. I think about it, but I think it's just like almost an impossible thing to bake into projections, which again, I think is a reason to be a little bit wary of the projections themselves, as opposed to some of the, you know, player archetype things that we talk about year two receivers and this and that, and looking at the individual player. And that's one of the big things that, you and I focus on in our drafts that that I've learned from you. I always say over the years that has helped me a ton is to focus on certain archetypes, to focus on these like big picture analyses that we've done um, that Rotoviz has done that have, you know, laid the groundwork for like, these are the types of targets we want. All of these things are tools. I think project, I think my main point on projections is they become a tool that's leaned on a little bit too much. You go through a whole process of doing a projections and you're going to trust your projections probably more than you should, especially for certain offenses this is why, which is why I'm color coding them and, and making them red and yellow. But when you look at 
you know, players in the dead zone, running backs in the dead zone or, or second year receivers and, and those types of things. I almost don't want to even pay attention to a team projection, because if that player is something that we don't, it's, it's, let me put it this way. Even when I goose the numbers and I goose the numbers a little bit for Rondell Moore to try to, I, I can't goose them enough to factor in what I think is his true potential breakout season, right? I can get him up like five or 10%, but I think there are scenarios where he's 50% better than what I'm projecting. And if I think that, then I still want to draft him. Well, let me run this by you. As I'm thinking through that and, and listening to what you're saying and thinking about some of the ways people are drafting right now, it's kind of interesting because one of the elements originally when the zero RB article came out was trying to kind of work through with people how a season would unfold and what the scenarios would be and how the first month was actually not the most important. And that as you then move through the number one, when you're drafting all those receivers, you're going to have that receiver firepower. You win the race to fill the flex, all of that. So it's actually sort of a safe approach as opposed to a risky approach. But then the thing that makes it not just a safe approach, but an approach that has all this upside is that you have the anti-fragile element where chaos ensues, then your team can get a lot better. And the time that you're expecting a team like that to be the best is going to be down the stretch. Now, because of all the tournaments and uh, you know the huge money best ball tournaments, there's so much focus on that now. And one of the things I was you know working with people on then was this idea of, you know, I've I've played these teams in tournaments and they've done extremely well. And that is sort of the reason. Now there's so much focus on stacking and correlating and make sure making sure that you're building a team for week 16, for week 17. That's where all the money's at. So if you're going to enter in the first place, you know, that's how you can actually make a lot of money on your entry. But there is the other element. And I'm not saying people are ignoring this at all, but how different would the exercise be? And would it be more or less valuable or just valuable in a different way if you set about to do your projections and you're just projecting weeks 15 through 17? Wow. That's another really good question. Oh, man. I think it would be a better exercise. I mean, think about it. That's, I mean, that's a really good question because I, I think we naturally have to try to project week one more. We, we're projecting towards what's the most likely or whatever. But if the exercise was actually, what do we think is going to happen by the end of the season? And like when we talk about it on the show, and people love this. They tell us this is a great way of thinking through things. I've heard it many times. Last year, we did our 2022 first rounds, right? We'll do it this year. We'll do our 2023 first rounds. Who's going to be the the stars as we're talking about drafting for next fantasy football season? That's who we want to draft this year because that means they had a pretty darn good 2022, right? And and it's sort of that same concept, right? Who's by the end of this year? What And the chaos that could ensue, what do I think this offense is going to look like? How's, how is the cream going to rise to the top? I would approach that, I think, in probably a lot more effective way for using that as a tool in drafts, because I think I would spend a lot more time thinking through the player talent that we've been talking about. Who can who can rise and and what might that look like? And you know, like when I do a full season projection, I feel like I have to keep in, you know, I just keep going back to the Rondell Moore thing, but I have to keep in some some targets for AJ Green. I have almost 50 targets for him because DeAndre Hopkins is going to be out. They brought him back. They're probably going to play him on the outside to start the year. He's going to get at least six games there as a starter. 
and then he's going to, at the worst, mix in a little bit, but potentially continue to play. Who knows, right? But I have him projected for 50 targets. If you're telling me to project week 15 to 17, I wouldn't probably feel obligated to project him for much because I, I can see a lot of scenarios where by that point with the different players in this offense, it's kind of become clear that he's not really a guy that they need to run a lot of routes. They might still make that mistake because they, they made that mistake last year. But, you know, being it, it would free you up, I think, from a, you know, from a bean counter perspective, from a, you know, an analytical, you know, I'm, I have a finance background and the way that I look at all these projections, I'm trying to do it like an accountant and and, and make everything add up. Um, I think it would free you up from that a little bit where it would turn into a little bit more of an art than science. I, I think, cause you're, you're thinking it would for me, cause I, I know there's a lot of chaos in NFL seasons and I don't think I'm, I have much ability to project week 15 other than knowing that a lot can happen in that first 14 weeks and guys can have good games and bad games and things, but cream tends to rise. And so guys like Brees Hall, I probably project Brees Hall for a pretty strong workload. Right. And so, yeah, it'd be a fun exercise. I'm not going to do it. It takes a really long time to do projections, but that's a really good idea. Well, Ben, this has been a lot of fun. We'll keep looking at different ideas and ways to think through some of these topics in terms of contingency-based drafting, running back dead zone, zero RB, hyper-fragile, anchor running back, what the different structures mean, how to best deploy them as opposed to just deploying them in a very vanilla type of way. We're going to think about the teams and their players. As you mentioned, we'll do that exercise where we do our 2023 first round. That one is always a lot of fun. But keep thinking through different ways to look at this because you know one thing that can happen is that you kind of get locked into, okay, well, this is how I was thinking about it last year, and it was fairly effective, and we've talked about these concepts, and they work. So you know, we'll go back to that is very important to to stay fresh and to unlock some things for ourselves and hopefully as we do that along the way uh, it'll help different people out and that's uh, even though we feel very fairly comfortable with some of these topics we get lots of really good questions about them all the time and so the more that we force ourselves to express and explain how we're drafting i think the better it'll make us draft and so this was one of my favorite episodes of the year. I mean, for that reason, exactly. I hope I hope the listeners agree. Let us know if you did. It, this was a lot of fun. I love when we do these sort of kind of more evergreen thought process discussions. I mean, I, th- I thought this was super, super fun. We'll have some more drafts as well. We know you guys want draft targets. Then July and August. It's the best time of the year, right? I mean, in July and August, you can't be wrong yet, too. So, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> Run no more. Right. Gotta keep talking about Rondo more. <laughs> so that'll do it for this episode. It's been so much fun. We appreciate having you guys with us. I'm Sean Siegel. Uh, with me is Ben Gretsch. And you can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. Make sure you sign up for Ceiling Signals. These projections that Ben is t- talking about will be on his show with Michael Leone, but also in the newsletter in various forms discussing some of the things that he's going through, really cool things that he's found. You won't want to miss that. What I'll do, what I did last year was tell everyone that not to use my projections, but if you want them, I'll make them available. That's that's what I did last year. And I said, I'm not even going to update these. I do this as a, a process for myself. I get the first run 
and I, 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 I'm not somebody who's trying to update him all the way through kickoff and try to be as accurate as I can be on him. But if you guys want them, they'll be there when they're ready. There you go. They'll be there, and Ben's being modest there because if you do go through his projections, you will learn some key things that help you draft. We've got all kinds of cool stuff going on over at Rosevis. You can join us there using the coupon code RBRADO2022 at checkout. That will get you a 10% discount on a one-year subscription to the site. We're going to be doing some FFPC drafts. We're going to be doing some underdog drafts. You can join us in underdog draft with us. We'll have some different options. Use the code ROTOVIZ over there, the simplest one you can possibly have. Get 100% deposit match up to $100. If you're like a lot of us, you'd like to get that $5,000 deposit match. But it's good to have it just be $100 to start. That way you can't get too much trouble right off the bat hundred dollar deposit match there all kinds of new fun contests releasing all the time subscribe to the feed you'll get these shows when they come out and if you can leave us a rating and review we always appreciate hearing what you guys have to say and you've been too kind we appreciate the Southern Bananas community so much we'll see you guys soon